0: I want you to imagine a absolutely huge church. I mean, we're we're growing, but I mean, a huge church, and it's in a very wealthy city, and it's very diverse. We got people from all over the world. And we've got people from every background you could think of, not just cultural, but religious. They might have come from worshiping no God. They might have come from worshiping several gods. And now this group of people is all together. And they're just getting started and all they need is a little bit of vision. If you could tell them anything, what would you tell them? How would you get them on their way? Well... If I wanted this church to grow and if I wanted this church to like me, (laughs) I might be tempted to talk about them, how diverse they are, what a wonderful kaleidoscope of people they are, how big and how influential their church could be in such a dark and depraved city. If they would simply stand together. That might be what I might be tempted to tell them. I don't know what you would do. But the Apostle Paul had such an opportunity. And he wrote a letter. And that letter found its way to an absolutely huge, very diverse city. In a a very wealthy church, very diverse city. And you can imagine them opening it up. And reading it aloud, this letter. But as it began, the people reading it noticed something. Paul didn't really begin by talking about them at all. At least not in the active sense. Instead, Paul talks about God. Who God is... And what God has done done among them. Their hope for unity is not in them, but in Him. That's what Paul said to this church. Friends, Paul begins his letter on church unity by talking about God. Because that's where unity comes from. So just as Paul began his letter talking about God, that's what I'm going to do as we begin Ephesians. Because God is our hope for unity. God chooses and he redeems and he seals his people. That's your outline. So we're going to look at him and then we're going to look at them. That's the Ephesian church. And then we're going to look at us. Let me first read of God's choosing and what that means in verses 1 through 6. in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So the first thing we find here is that God the Father chose his people that word is used in verse four in fact this is such good news to paul that before he even says that word in verse three he implies the proper response of the people who were chosen that proper response is the first word of verse three blessed as in this god who has chosen his people is to be blessed by them paul's already setting up their application and we'll talk about that later so just keep that word blessed in mind so what's worthy of the blessing is that god the father has chosen his people and i want to explain just how how big and how good this news is for this church in Ephesus. Because if you're a non-Jew, which is very likely in Ephesus, you just came out of a very complicated religious background to be in this church. So you might read the word chosen, if that's you, and you might smile and think, oh, he chose me, you know, just now. He kind of picked me out of where I was. But that's not what verse 4 says. Verse 4 says, this choosing is not something God just did now. He did it before the foundation of the world. And he did it still in verse 4 so that they would be holy and blameless. In other words, unified to God. And a non-Jew reading this would think, all this? And I'm not even a Jew? Because Jews had a reputation. That's amazing, and I would think that that would be worthy of blessing. But if you're Jewish, these words hit a little different. The word chosen might actually be more challenging for you. See, a Jewish person would read the word chosen and they'd think, wait a minute, God chose us when we became a nation. That's how we got chosen. Because they've actually historically worn their chosen status as a bit of a badge of honor. But you have to consider their history when you look back at passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. I want you to listen to these words. This is God speaking to young Israel. And I want you to listen now in light of this whole chosen before the foundation of the world. And compare that to a Jew who might wear their status as a badge of honor. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 7. God speaking to Israel. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all people but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt how much are those words really about Israel compared to God? See, God actually chose them, not for what they had, but for what they lacked. They were so small. God's choosing was not because of how big they were. It was God's love. He wanted small people to be holy and blameless before him. God chose them before they had a heritage to claim. Without that, their claim has to be God alone. See, that's why the next verse, verse 5, is great news when you think about it through the lens of God's love. Because verse 5 uses a word... That can really put people off. I'm gonna say, you ready? Predestined. In the minds of some people, even Christians, this is a bad word. It seems to remove our humanity, doesn't it? Like reducing people like the Jews to little pawns on God's chessboard. What happens to free will? Well, when you're God, predestined is just another word for chosen. Because God knows all destinies. God is outside of time. God is not surprised. And so if God is the one chosen, being predestined, being chosen by him is good news. If he's really this God of Deuteronomy chapter 7. This loving God who takes small people and makes them holy. If God is the one choosing, being chosen is good news. And so is being small. But we've got a problem because Israel wasn't just small. People aren't just small. People are sinful. That gives nuance to verse five, which adds another word to the word party. Adoption. He adopted Israel. He adopts people. It doesn't just mean someone was chosen. That's not how adoption works. It means they were in a position of desperately needing to be chosen. Let me illustrate. Have you ever adopted a puppy? Our kids would love to do that. I'm sorry, kids. We're trying to leave the country at the moment. (laughs) If you take a child to adopt a puppy, what happens? Which one do they go for? The cutest one? The friendliest one? I mean, that's normally how people work. Right? I think most people would do that. We need to see the puppy and we need to like the puppy. That's not how God the Father chooses people, according to Ephesians. Imagine instead a father who calls up a puppy shelter and says, When the next round of puppies is born, I want the smallest one. And uh, the person on the other end of the phone says, don't you want to see it first? No. No, I want it. And um, then the big day arrives. And the uh, puppy turns out not just to be small, but terrible. Biting at him. Resisting his every command tearing up his house. If that were you, would you still want the puppy? Probably not. You might at best keep him because you were morally obligated. But God still wanted the puppy. God chose people in spite of people. That's how God chooses people. They sinned so greatly. And yet, before they were even born, he chose them anyway. He wasn't surprised. And he did this, according to verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. How gracious is a father like this? Not just... One that would adopt, but one that would adopt this. Before they had a heritage to claim, before they had a chance to try to prove themselves, he chose them. And now, both a Jewish and a non Jewish person are reading this letter, and perhaps they're starting to think, we're really not so different. Are we? God chose us. God can choose anybody. Well, as we just read about the puppies, it's not exactly that simple. I mean, if they're going to be holy, if they're going to be blameless, I mean, how can people who... We know from Genesis through Ephesians to be sinful. And at best, when they're unified, it's against God. How can they be in God's presence and live? How can they be holy? God can't simply set the bar low. That's not how God works. No, they wouldn't survive. Holiness means set apart. So if God chooses them, he's got to set them apart too. The removal of sin. We can't just outweigh it with acts of kindness. God the Father needs to do the cleaning. That's where the unity of God starts to come really fully into view here. Because God the Son comes in. That's Jesus. See, we've been talking about God the Father... And he's introduced, uh, Jesus is introduced here in verse 5, now as the means to our adoption. That's how people are able to be adopted. The next few verses tell us how the cleaning happens, how people are made holy. Let me read verses 7 through 12. In him, it's Jesus... In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, first, God the Father chose his people. Second, God the Son redeems them. Again, just so we're clear, this is according to verse 7 here, all according to grace. I mean, that's how redemption works. When you redeem somebody, you don't just save them, you buy them back. That's what the word redeem means. And the payment, according to verse 7, is Jesus' blood. Again, our Ephesian church audience responds differently to these words. See, for the non-Jew, coming out of whatever religious background they came out of, they might have been tied up in, in really terrible like sacrifices with whatever religion they used to be in. I mean, some of the people in this church would have sacrificed people. So the idea of Jesus willingly being the sacrifice would cause them to take notice. Wait, God did that? That's different. (laughs) Once again, for the Jewish reader, this would hit differently and history would come into mind. Blood has loaded meaning for a Jew as well. What would come to mind? Well, perhaps their most famous redemption up to this point. Redemption from slavery in Egypt. Who redeemed them? God did. I'm going to go back and read the tail end of that Deuteronomy 7 passage for you again. Because we're going to come back to that. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So how did God set Israel's redemption in motion? Well, in the final plague before Israel was set out, God sent an angel to kill the firstborn in every house of Egypt. Israel wasn't even exempt from this. What saved them? Well, they would sacrifice a lamb and they'd use the blood to paint the doorway and the angel would pass over. A little graphic, I know. We won't get into that. But the point is that the lamb would die so they wouldn't. The blood would cover them. So friends, the Ephesian Jew reading this letter would make a connection. Jesus' blood is like the blood of that lamb. Or maybe the lamb is just a shadow of Jesus. Maybe a greater redemption is here and the time of bloody sacrifice is over for everybody. So what Paul says next in verse 10 is perhaps the height of the letter with this in mind. The blood of Jesus has solved the mystery and set in motion redemption on a global scale. Jesus' blood is not just reserved for Israel. Verse 10 tells us that this mystery now solved in Christ is to give unity To all things in heaven and on earth. There you have it. Anybody can be chosen. Anybody can be redeemed. God is doing it. So the Jewish person reading this letter in Ephesus would look up at his non-Jewish ex-cult member brother in the Lord and they'd say, wait a minute. You didn't save yourself by your sacrifices, but neither did I. It was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what did it. God the Son, by the choosing of God the Father. Ephesus, you can build a church around that, can't you? Bring people together, not under the umbrella of their diversity, but under the umbrella of God's love for all people. You can build the church around that. So the only question left is, how long does this last? We got a good vision. How do we keep this going? Well, forever if God does that too let me read verses 13 through 14 in him it's Jesus you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of our salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the third thing God has done is sealed his people. So now we move first from God the Father to God the Son. Now we move to God the Holy Spirit. All working together for the same purpose. That's verse 13. When these non-Jews believed that Jesus redeemed them, they got something as a seal. Or as verse 13 puts it, a promise. It's a guarantee. God dwells in them just as he's dwelling in their faithful Jewish brothers who have put their faith in Jesus. And it doesn't end there. The promise comes, according to verse 14, with a guarantee. They get an inheritance. Well, I think you know that inheritance is not something that you earn. You just get it because of who your dad is. So how do these words impact their diverse audience? Well, for the non jew their history is maybe not as clear. It's multicultural, it's polytheistic. I I guess that their prior sacrifices and their religious work might have led them to think that their inheritance might be some kind of prosperity. If so, they would have had the same response as their Jewish friends here in Ephesus. Because the Jew would think of their promised inheritance throughout Scripture. And for them, it was always land. The promised land when they were taken out of Egypt, when they were redeemed there. What was their inheritance? A land, or more specifically, a nation. And they get this promised land, but you see, they could never quite hold on to that land, could they? Ironically, they couldn't because of their idolatry. I mean, even in Jesus' time, his own disciples thought that land was the inheritance. What did they say? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know what they were thinking. But here in Ephesians one eleven, the inheritance is actually... Written in more of a present tense. Seems to be all around them. The nation. It's people. That's the inheritance. It's a Jew looking around and seeing people from all nations worshiping the same God. Friends. The result of all this would be everyone in the Ephesian church looking around and saying, that's why we're here. People who look very different, but they have the same Holy Spirit inside of them. All sealed by the Holy Spirit preserve them preserving them and all redeemed by God, the son who has saved them all chosen by God, the father whose blessed eternal plan to unify his creation is being fulfilled right before their eyes. Everyone is there because of God and their application would be to bless him, to praise him. And friends, just as this letter is not for Ephesian eyes only, this application is for us. How do we apply this? Bless God for what he has done, chosen us, redeemed us, sealed us. So the application for the Christian is to bless God for those things. And let me, let me admit how easy it is for me to not do that. And it can come so natural. I get so busy serving God, don't you? But for me, I can forget in the midst of all my busyness, that it is God who chooses and redeems and seals people. And I start thinking it's my job. These words are more than just theological jargon to win arguments. This passage is a promise that I was chosen by God. He drew me to himself. This passage is a promise that I was redeemed by Jesus. He saved me. This passage is a promise that I was sealed by the Holy Spirit. He will preserve me. And that's not just true for me. That's true for you. If you are in Jesus Christ. So let me apply this to myself. And while I do that, I'd like you to think of maybe your own story. And we'll have time during small groups for a bit more of that. Let's talk about choosing. See, I became a Christian when I was in college. And I was on a very proud trajectory of resting in my church upbringing. Because I knew all the hard words. And I knew where the passages were. I knew the answer to every question was Jesus. Yep. And underneath all that was a disingenuous person who really thought not that God chose him, but that he chose God. Resting in my proud Heritage. And from one angle, you could say, I chose God, right? But my actions, the way I treated people, revealed the object of my blessing. Because I tended to gravitate towards other church kids. And then I would meet ex-gang members. We'd go out to start Bible studies in the dorms. And guess whose dorms I would walk past? The bad kids. Maybe you do too. Who's getting blessed when you do that? It's not God. I didn't care for the kid in the religious cult. I didn't care for the atheists because they weren't like me. It wasn't simply a rookie mistake. I was playing God. I chose people I liked. God humbled me through that. Because if he chose me, when I realized what he had done, and I realized he still chose me, then it starts to sink in. He can choose anyone. And I start becoming less. Second, let's talk about redemption. Sometimes I rest in the idea, in the idea that I saved myself by my own moral standards. And here's how it works. This works out just about every day. See if you can do a little mental inventory of yourself. Every day I have this moving target of morality. And uh, if I hit that moving target every day, well, that was a good day. Do you have those? And if I fail, I feel rotten. Up and down, up and down. And what happens then is, well, who gets blessed? Not God. Because when that happens, when I'm setting the standard, when I'm choosing my redemption and what I'm doing, well, I either magnify myself with praise or I heap shame on myself. And either way, who's the point? Me. Perhaps you do that too. When I do that, I take all the blessing away from God. I take it away from the cross of Jesus Christ when I do that. And if I were to apply that standard as a preacher here, wow, what would this pulpit become? If it became about my moving standard of morality this pulpit would become a cesspool of moral teaching and self-help with no praise of Jesus. No blessing of God the Father. Friends, that's why we talk about Jesus so much here. That's why people say, why do you keep landing on the same thing? What else will save us? Finally, let's talk about the seal of the Holy Spirit. This one gets real interesting because we don't, we don't like to talk about the Spirit in America, do we? It just seems so irrational. I know exactly when I'm failing here, when I'm thinking I'm preserved by my own faithfulness, because my life becomes a roller coaster of emotions happened yesterday. (laughs) I was sitting on a park bench just worrying about all the things in my life that just didn't seem to come together. You know? I gotta have all this stuff come together to go on this trip. I gotta do all this stuff to take care of my house. You know what I'm thinking about? Land. 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 Not thinking about my family, leading them. Not thinking about the people around me. I'm thinking about me when I do that. Who gets the blessing? Not God. Guess what God brought to mind when I did that yesterday? Ephesians. Went right to my own sermon notes and preached to myself. When I fail to do this, and when we fail to do this, we get the exact opposite of the confidence that comes from knowing that God does all the work. What happens to somebody who stays on that trajectory? Who never preaches to themselves and who never humbles themselves to be preached to by the people around them. They don't last long. They don't last long at church either. Because when it's all about you preserving yourself. You will inevitably pull away and you'll tell yourself one of two stories. Story number one is that you are an irredeemable villain. Can't be saved. I just keep messing up. And you run away. Because your seal, that's going to break. Not God's seal. The other thing that happens, if you don't do this, is you pull away as the hero who is running away from all the hypocrites. Maybe you bounce around from church to church and it's always their problem. Look in the mirror, please, if that's you. But friends, to bless God for all three of these things, that brings life. When I do this, When I do this by God's grace, my confidence becomes not in myself, but in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because those things, God will continually, even in spite of my failings, he will keep drawing me back to the promise that he made and he fulfills. The sealing of the Holy Spirit, my redemption found in Jesus, and my choosing by the love of God the Father. Maybe we're just looking at ourselves too much. One final application, and it's for anyone here who has not yet put their faith in Jesus, or perhaps is simply not sure of if they've really been chosen. God can adopt anybody. To say that you are above needing to be adopted is pride To say that you are too messed up to be adopted is also pride. It's all about you. God can adopt anybody. Were you in a cult? Or did you grow up in a church family believing that you were saved by your heritage? Because both parties were more than welcome in Ephesus. And both parties are welcome here. Friends, there is tremendous peace in knowing you've been chosen and redeemed and sealed. This is how churches get unified. By being full of people who know that God has unified them. Because He is a God of unity. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for these promises Lord, we confess that these words have been bad words in our hearts. That we think we are the ones who do the choosing and the redemption and the sealing. Lord, it is you who do all three. And that is our confidence. That's not just not bad news. It's good news. God, we thank you. For the blessing of communion. Which is the reminder. Of that redemption. Of that choosing. Of that sealing. God help us now. As we serve as your people. Amen.